Welcome to the View Magazine's Rebel Justice Podcast. Disclosure, this podcast contains content about rape and violence against women, which some users may find traumatizing. Please listen with care and look after yourself if it feels overwhelming or triggering. In this week's podcast, we bring you a personal perspective of Jade Blue, an activist and a survivor of horrific crime of rape who has been brave enough to share her story. We are grateful to Jade for joining us for this episode in which she speaks about her experience with the justice system and where she wants to see it change. How can so many women go through such unspeakable crimes and so many perpetrators get away with it? Does the justice system expect too much of victims and then let them down because the system is rigged against women who dare to stand up and complain? Rebel Justice Podcast is produced by The View magazine, which is the only platform by and for women in the justice system, where, by amplifying their stories, we shine a light on injustice, gender inequality, and abusive systems. Jade, thank you so much for coming. Could we please start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes, of course. And thank you ever so much for asking me to join you and, and have me on here. Uh, so my name is Jade Blue. Um, I'm a survivor and campaigner. My own personal experience with the criminal justice system has fueled my passion to create change and support others who have gone through similar traumatic experiences. Um, I believe that by sharing our stories, it's a powerful way to raise awareness and bring about positive change. So by speaking openly about the mistakes made in my case and the impact that they've had on my life, I really hope to shed light on the flaws within the system and really advocate for improvements that will better serve survivors. It is my belief that no one should ever have to endure the pain and suffering of sexual assault alone, and it's often done in isolation, and also the pain that our justice system also inflicts upon us. I'm dedicated to breaking the silence and fighting for a society that listens, believes and supports survivors. And I think by engaging in conversations like ours today, raising awareness and challenging the status quo, I do believe that we can create a more just world. I am passionate about ensuring our voices are being heard. And really, my ethos is very much that we cannot be silent about things that matter. We, we have to make ourselves heard. Thank you, Jade. Will you be comfortable to share your story and your own experience with the justice system with our listeners? Yes, of course, no problem. So my whole life changed when I was raped after a night out with friends, which was back in 2017. Although the incident of rape was traumatic and had challenges to come to terms with, it was actually my interaction with the Crown Prosecution Service and the Met Police in London that caused me the most distress. And to put it simply, I just don't want others to have to go through what I had. I think navigating the criminal justice system is an uphill battle, especially relating to sexual violence, domestic abuse with challenges at every point. But over three and a half years after reporting my rape, my case was dropped by the Crown Prosecution Service, and that was just a mere 13 days before the trial, over claims that I suffered from sexomnia. I guess for those unfamiliar with the term, this is a type of sleep disorder known as a parasomnia, and where people engage in sexual behaviours while asleep. Needless to say that this came as an immense shock and did shake, like, shake me to the core. It felt so wrong and literally none of it made any sense. So my immediate thoughts were, I just had to challenge this. I had to prove that I didn't suffer from sexomnia and that their premature decision to, to close my case was wrong. So I put forward my request for what we call the victim's right to review. 
Um, it's a scheme that basically allows victims to kind of challenge a decision, whether it's like a police VRR or a CPS VR. It's like an independent review process. So I put that forward, but um, I knew nothing would change in my case, but I couldn't let this happen to somebody else. I do have vast concerns that this notion of a victim suffering from sexomnia can set an incredibly concerning precedent. And I think it does pose a risk of being the next rough sex defence. So I think this does need to be addressed immediately within our legal system. The pain that the CPS had inflicted upon me, I can only describe as cruel and inhumane. And I just can't stand by and let this happen to somebody else. The effects that they've had, they've, they've turned my life upside down. Like mental, physical and emotional implications plague my life since they dropped the case. And they were exacerbated when that victim's right to review returned, where they admitted they actually made a mistake. They stated that the case should have gone to trial, believing that he would have been convicted. So they've essentially put their hands up and admitted their failings. However, they, they can like literally do nothing. And the man that raped me has walked free and he was not held accountable and didn't face any consequences whatsoever. I think like, this is incredibly troubling for me and I'm constantly trying to process what's happened with the CPS. There is never really a point in my day where I'm not somehow thinking about this just like monumental failure. So I think like reflecting back at like a time when 98.7% of reported rapes are not prosecuted, I feel, I, I guess I felt, I still feel, and I think it's so important that I share my experience. I feel like I need to use my voice to share the harrowing mistakes that were made in my case and their profound impact on my life. So yeah, I'm speaking up publicly, advocating for change and seeking improvements for other victims. I think my hope is that by shedding light on my own experience with the criminal justice system, that I can contribute in some form or the other to some reform that will protect and support survivors in their pursuit of justice. I am so sorry to hear that you've gone through this and thank you so much for sharing and speaking up. Do you have any thoughts on what you see that could change in the justice system so everyone could be treated fairly, especially women? Um... I mean, regarding why females may be treated differently, I think particularly in like sexual offences, I think we just have to kind of look back and acknowledge the historical and societal factors that have basically perpetuated gender inequality for a very long time with deep-rooted gender stereotypes, societal attitudes, systemic biases. I think this all has influenced the way that sexual offences are perceived and addressed. And I think so many myths and stereotypes do remain present in our society today. I think women have historically faced numerous challenges in reporting sexual assault and domestic violence. It often comes with kind of disbelief, victim blaming, like a lack of support. And I think all these factors really contribute to a culture where survivors, especially females, are less likely to come forward or, or face barriers when seeking justice. I think addressing these biases and stereotypes within the justice system is, is vital and vital to ensure that all survivors receive equal treatment and support like regardless of gender and I, I just think there's just so many so many layers to unpick there from religious beliefs and things like there's just so many different elements that can can be a hindrance supposedly within the justice system due to these myths and stereotypes that are still still very present I mean it, it's doing far from ensuring equal treatment for us I think but yeah I think education awareness is needed. So definitely raising awareness about gender biases and their impact on the justice system is like essential. And I think even this includes like legal professionals, judges, any kind of law enforcement people, they need to recognise and challenge their own biases. And a lot of work needs to go into that, I feel. There needs to be like comprehensive training 
like gender sensitivity, sexual assault dynamics, and really just have that kind of I think the buzzword that I've heard over the years is to be trauma informed. But I still don't actually see that <laughs> in a lot of a lot of correspondence I see, a lot of other victims' experiences. And I, I do feel that they, um, like lawyers as such, police officers, they they're almost um, they need to kind of really understand what goes through victims like what what their experiences are and I feel like they often get desensitized because they deal with the subject matter on a daily basis but they need to know that for us that's our whole life imploding and crumbling like underneath us and we have no control or anything but they need to really understand that each and every interaction is is so important in a victim's journey of, of seeking justice I think it can be the crux of why people drop out as well like if they don't have somebody who they they feel is truly advocating for them and, and really has a genuine interest in the case to to ensure that everything is done properly. I think without that, yeah, they just they need to understand every every interaction is is so pivotal. Yes, thank you. Going back to your experience, was there someone in the system who supported you or tried to understand you, be it a police officer or a lawyer? Um, so I had a lot of challenges in my case and there was some positives as well. I think when I first reported, once I'd been given a SOET officer, which is like the sexual offences investigative trained officer, so quite specialist, um, they were great for like the first 18 months um, up until the charging decision. And then that completely went downhill. But for the first 18 months, they did keep me updated. I felt kind of listened to, properly heard and, and fully understood. Um, but as I said, like once once the case had got a charging decision, all that open communication completely vanished. It was really challenging to try and get hold of them. I actually went through three different SOA officers in my in my process. Um, so having to constantly chop and change with who's supposed to be that support person just as you're getting used to somebody and being able to have a good like rapport with them. Oh no, the next one comes along. Um, so yeah, I even had an experience where the last one I had completely absconded. I had no, no, um, response from her, from calls, texts, emails, nothing, not even like an auto response from an email. There was, there was nothing. So at that point, I also had a new detective constable in my case. So I didn't have any contact information for yet because I hadn't met them. So I was at one point in the whole process of leading up to the trial that I just had no contact with the police officer whatsoever I ended up calling 111 to which is like a non-emergency police number to be like this is the name of the person I think they're in this police station do you have a contact email for them or something I can like reach out to this person I need I need answers to some questions and so like to have that kind of um experience was a bit crap <laughs> I think like Again, with all the issues I had with the police, and I could unpick a lot of issues that happened with the police, but um, I ended up reaching out to a CPS lawyer directly with the support of Claire Waxman, Victims Commissioner of London, and I was able to to get a meeting with a CPS lawyer in my case just to discuss everything and kind of really give me some answers to the many questions I had. And it was a really positive experience. I would have to say that that three three hour conversation I had with him, or just under three hours relinquished a full three years worth of stress and anxiety I really felt like wow okay I can go to court I know exactly what to expect I know that this guy knows my case like this is this is going to be fine I I, I it, that was like a really positive 
positive experience with the CPS. And that's like, those are the moments that I really feel need to become the norm. Like it shouldn't just be because everything was so terrible and I had to really fight and advocate for myself that I was able to source that. That should be the golden standard for everyone because it makes such, such a world of difference to actually have that opportunity. And it completely puts people in different mindsets. I know more commonly that people end up meeting the prosecutors on the day of the trial, which you have this very brief, very scary moment of like five minute conversation with the person that's in charge of your destiny in the in the courtroom like it's just an insane prospect so the fact that I had that prior to when the trial was due to start was immensely beneficial and filled me with with confidence that I could continue the journey with this like quest for justice as such <laughs> so how did they come up with the justification of sexomnia to drop your case you said it was going okay and all of a sudden it changed indeed yeah it came as quite a surprise <laughs> so I guess the best way of explaining it would be so starting from I guess the kind of beginning of of the sleep side of things so it was actually like one after, afternoon in like June 2020, I think it would be, where I received a call from my SOET officer completely out of the blue. Like I had minimal contact with the police since the charging decision. So this this call came as quite a shock. Um, I was at work. I remember it so, so vividly. Like as soon as I saw her number um, on my phone, my stomach sank, my legs turned to jelly and I just felt so weak and physically sick. I mean, it was a brief call, but one that definitely stuck with me. And she called to say that the CPS returned to them asking for more evidence. So at this point, I was in like absolute dismay. Like, how was this even possible? Because at that point, the case was actually due to be seen in March 2020, but due to COVID, it was postponed. So I was like, how can they even be seeking more evidence at this point? The trial would have already started if it wasn't to COVID. So like, I was just completely baffled. Um, so basically the officer kind of advised that the defense wanted to appoint a sleep expert, but the officer had no further information whatsoever. And I had like numerous questions, but she wasn't equipped to answer them. Um, so she essentially just dropped that bomb in the middle of the day while I was at work and couldn't even clarify what this actually meant. So yeah, I had to leave work and really continue with my shift. I was just so angry, confused, concerned. And it was actually at that point that kind of led me to speak to the CPS lawyer. And that's like, how I was able to to source that that call really. I mean, it wasn't easy to access or arrange, but as I said, with the poor service levels of the police, the lack of engagement and communication, I did have to go to the horse's mouth, <laughs> straight to the horse's mouth, and that was the CPS. So it was after that call that he advised that they would like the defense has basically asked if I would do a sleep expert questionnaire. And this man, the CPS lawyer, he reassured me that the additional evidence request was really merely a tip box exercise and he didn't have any concerns. So I definitely like felt comfortable undertaking that additional request. Um, it was shortly after the interaction with the CPS, I actually received this 15 question questionnaire about my sleep. Um, I returned that to the police officer within days and then they submitted that to the CPS. And that was the last I heard from them until I received a call from my SERIT officer on a Monday evening on October 2020. And that's when they called the police officer to say, look, we are having a meeting tomorrow. You need to come down to this local South London police station. There's going to be a CPS representative there as well. But they wouldn't tell me any more information. So, of course, my mind went absolutely wild with all the possible variables about like why this meeting was due to be held. 
is there like further evidence required or is there court delays again? Um, and then I had to essentially wait 20 hours for this meeting to be conducted. Barely slept that evening. Like it was horrible. So yeah, I walked up to the local police station on the following day and yeah, I was expecting the worst, but nothing can actually prepare you to hear the worst. And I would describe this day as like the day that my life turned upside down and took a dire turn. And it was like more so than the actual rape itself. Um, so they had this meeting in a local police station. I was with seven, seven other people present in a blend of in-person and remote settings due to COVID. So there was like two senior CPS representatives, four police officers and my independent sexual violence advisor. And of course me, it was very top heavy. I feel like their power and control in this space was incredibly weighty and it didn't set me at at ease at all. And it was about after 25 minutes of him talking about the incident in far too much detail. It literally felt like I was in a courtroom and he was opening up to a jury. Um, After I asked him, could you like, please cut to the chase and let me know what on earth is happening? He he told me that my case was being closed, marked as no evidence, which is a very, very affirmative case closure with claims that I suffered from an episode of sexomnia. So my rapist would be acquitted without him ever being put in front of a jury and his statement challenged. And that was the first time that I had heard about sexomnia when they dropped my case. I had no opportunity to kind of challenge it. I had no opportunity to um, kind of seek another opinion as such. Like I couldn't quite fathom that this diagnosis as such had all come from a 15 question questionnaire. I just couldn't comprehend how somebody who had never even physically seen me or assessed me or even spoken to me on the telephone could come to the conclusion that that's what happened that evening. And like looking back on it now, like it's it's just an insane clutching at straws out there concept to, to pluck this out of thin air. Like it's, it's just baffling. Like it's, it's still dumbfounds me. Like when I say it out loud and I try to like rationalize it, it's still like something that I just find so, so shocking. It's something I challenged immediately with the CPS. I was like, how can these like, cause it was actually two sleep experts, one that the defense appointed. And then the prosecution had, um, appointed a second opinion. Um, but that second opinion was merely like a comment on the original report by the defense. No further questioning or interrogation of me or my sleep or any like extensive sleep study. Because to have a diagnosis of sexomnia, you have to have, or from what I understand in my research since the case has been closed, really there's a polysomnography which can give you a good insight into your sleep behaviors a history with your bed partners, no bed partners. I I had it at the time. I think it was a good like 13, 15 years of sleep history with my current partner and my ex-partner. And they were all willing to go on the record and discuss my sleep. Like that, that was not even considered. And then to have no real, like I've never really been to a doctor about any sleep issues. I had like the occasional sleep walking, sleep talking as like a teenager and younger, but nothing in my adulthood. And also like the occasional sleep talking, which I think half of the country does have. So it's just a very slippery slope for the fact that so loosely it can be diagnosed. And it just feels like an extreme form of victim blaming, which I think is incredibly dangerous for for people to to manipulate this within the courts. Yes, incredibly dangerous and shocking that this is happening. I was wondering what helped you stay strong throughout this experience? 
Oh gosh, crikey. Um, <laughs> I think it was a combination of clearing myself up at every stage. I felt like I needed to read up and fully understand what was coming, like what to expect. Like, I mean, I know it's really not everyone's cup of tea, but it certainly worked for me. I think for me, knowledge was power. I just needed to equip myself to understand if something felt wrong or unjust. I could just ask the right questions and ensure that everything was on track because I just wasn't going to let someone who couldn't do their job correctly affect how I was going to get through this. I also feel like self-care and connection with like friends, family, partner, they were my pillars and picked me up when I was flat, like when I was not willing to continue or I was, there's so many times I could have just like chucked the towel in, like, and I feel like if I hadn't have told them about what was going on, like, I don't think I would have been able to like maintain the energy to continue that, that kind of justice journey because it, it's it's draining from 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 start to finish I mean I'm not even finished in this justice journey yet but like it's still ongoing but it's just so tiring if I didn't have the support around me to decompress share my experience pick me up when I'm down like it's just yeah would not be where I am now but also like support from organizations and charities and also like the likes of Claire Waxman and the Victims Commissioner of London in her office they were an integral part of my journey. And I think their willingness to listen and like understand my experiences really allowed me to find my voice and recognize the power of vulnerability. I think Claire and her team taught me that our experiences can be used for good, no matter how difficult or challenging. And I learned that we can challenge the status quo, advocate for change and do like we can make a real difference in the lives of others. And they also connected me to the incredible BBC journalists that I'd worked with for three years on the documentary Sex Omnia Case Closed on, on BBC Three. BBC iPlayer they all contributed to my understanding that I wasn't alone in my struggle and it's important to remember that healing is a process and that it's totally okay to have moments of vulnerability and to lean on your support system and take things one step at a time I just think like to any person who is listening and has gone through a similar experience um, please know that your voice matters and your story is significant you are not defined by what has happened to you and there is hope for healing and reclaiming your life Stay strong, believe in yourself and reach out for the support you deserve because you are not alone and there are people who want to stand by you on your journey to healing and justice. Wow, thank you so much, Jade. Thank you for the words of inspiration and for your courage. And where can we see your documentary? The documentary on BBC Three came out last year, late last year. Um, it's currently on BBC iPlayer um, in the true crime section at the moment. It's on the true crime landing page at the moment on on iPlayer so it's got a nice little um rejuge online we've recently won an award at a uh, broadcast digital awards so that was nice (laughs) wow congratulations any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners yeah definitely I mean I think you've probably got from from here today like navigating the criminal justice system in its current form is something that cannot be taken lightly It's an uphill battle from the get-go, especially relating to sexual violence or domestic abuse. There are challenges at every point, but I feel we should all be aware that we can challenge these organisations. It isn't an easy journey, but with the support of friends, family and support services, you are not alone. Someone is there to listen to you, support you, inspire you and pick you up. Our voices can collectively contribute to a change in our justice system and on a broader level. We have to use our voices. We do have to make ourselves heard. Rebel Justice Podcast is produced by The View magazine, which is the only platform by and for women in the justice system, where, by amplifying their stories, we shine a light on injustice 
gender inequality, and abusive systems. Thanks for listening this week. We are so grateful for Jade's courage and for her sharing her story. We hope it will give you hope if you find yourself in a situation where you feel abandoned by the process and agencies meant to protect us all. With less than 2% of rape cases ever coming to trial, it is obvious that not enough is being done to protect victims of rape, where the trauma and violation women have experienced from a perpetrator is heightened by the lack of care in the court process. We oppose all violence against women, and this episode highlights the need for the immediate reform of the criminal justice system. Please click the links in the description and stay in touch via our social media networks. Do you subscribe to The View? Don't miss our quarterly digital magazine to stay on top of all the latest news and insight from the people at the front line of justice reform.